Would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in your Bible? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. going to change a little bit of the order that you see in the bulletin. That is just to mention today that uh, Daniel and Elena Overly are uh, pursuing membership. They have been through the membership class. Uh, they have agreed to the Constitution Statement of Beliefs of Falls Berean Bible Church. They're willing to follow the leadership. And so I just wanted to mention them as prospective members. Um, we have a week intervening between the time we announce and then we vote, and so we did have an opportunity to interview them and hear their testimonies. Pastor John and I were able to hear their testimonies, and uh, we rejoice for this opportunity to fellowship with them in an official way. Thankful for their presence here, but uh, we will be voting uh, in the next week on that, so I wanted to mention. I think most of you know Daniel and Elena. They're back there behind Julie, so I know we've become with them and appreciated their fellowship with us. First Thessalonians chapter 2, when I think of Father's Day, I oftentimes think of this chapter, uh, especially the portion of the chapter where Paul is describing his relationship with the Thessalonian believers. Um, we could read in the book of Acts to see Paul's missionary journeys as he went to various places. He spent some time in Thessalonica. And there's really not a lot in the book of Acts describing his time there, but we do have uh, the two letters to the Thessalonians which express his heart towards them. And especially as you look at the theme of the passage in total, he's talking about uh, disciples, disciples that he had made, disciples that Timothy and Silas and he had made as he preached the gospel to them, as they had come to Christ, and then as he spent time with them, we get a, an understanding of their time together in part through what Paul relates here. And if you look down particularly at verse 10, just read verses 10 through 12, we'll be going through more of the passage than that. But verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you, believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's especially that phrase, as a father would his own children. I remember the first time I heard a message on this passage, the pastor who was preaching drew attention to the principles in this passage that are true of fatherhood and even uh, motherhood, because he mentions a little earlier on a nurse or a nursing mother, and he said that for those principles to be mentioned here, in the context of discipleship means those principles that stand as kind of a foundation for his relationship to these individuals, these new believers, it suggests that these are principles that apply to the home, apply to a father, apply to a mother 
And uh, so those principles at base are some of what we're going to consider this morning. It was very helpful to me to see that, but I don't want you to miss the import of the passage or the focus of the passage, which is really Paul the Apostle speaking to new believers. And I think as you see that, it actually helps you to see how someone who is in the church seeking to make disciples of those who do not know the Lord, as someone comes to the Lord, even as you deal with someone who is newer to the faith, there are principles here that can be applied that are very nourishing to new believers, nurturing to new believers, and help new believers grow up in Christ. He is talking to a group of people who came to Christ as he preached. If you go back to chapter 1 for a moment, you can see how they came to Christ, how they came to the new birth. Chapter 1 and verse 2, he's, after introducing himself and Silas and Timothy, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, God's election of them. How did he know that? Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, he's describing their reception of the gospel message, the message about Jesus Christ, the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross for their salvation. And even though there was trouble and even persecution of the Apostle Paul, they received that message. And then as they received the message, Paul says in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And he's writing to the believers there at Thessalonica. That's a city. Macedonia, Achaia, regions. So this church became well known in part their response to the gospel, their imitation of the Apostle Paul. Their life of faith was now, you could say, famous. Certainly they had a reputation because they'd come to Christ. And notice he goes on to describe how their lives looked after he had preached the gospel and they believed it. He says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we need not to say anything. They're being very evangelistic now. They're preaching the gospel that they had received. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And here it is, another description of how they came to Christ, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So these are believers. They've come to know Jesus Christ. They'd heard Paul and Silas and Timothy preach the gospel message Even though there was trouble surrounding that persecution of these men, they responded to the gospel message with faith 
and they turn from their sins, they turn from their worship of idols, they trusted in Christ alone, they receive forgiveness of their sins, and now they're living a hope-filled life looking for Jesus. It says in verse 10, they're waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Now, Paul was involved in, I could think you could put it this way, in their birth, their new birth. These people who had been there at Thessalonica, living their lives of idolatry, living not for God, but for themselves, for their idols. God, in His grace, sent the Apostle Paul and his companions there to preach the message of the good news. And Paul describes his relationship to those who came to Christ under his preaching as his children. I think you can see that theme certainly in chapter 2, but you can see it other places when, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, he refers to the Corinthian believers as my beloved children. And he speaks of himself as having begotten them in Christ. He says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Now that's not taking place the place of God the Father. It is to say that as he preached the gospel and they came to a new birth, that he had this relationship now with them. This new believer. A new birth has happened and then he's trying to nurture the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians he's asking, or answering rather, a lot of their questions. He uses this in other places. Of course, he calls Timothy his son, uh, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He may have, by his preaching there at Lystra, Lystra brought Timothy uh, to Christ as well. In Philemon, he refers to Onesimus as a son whom he has begotten in his bonds. But Paul, when he was free, was preaching the gospel to cities and in the marketplace and lots of different places, synagogues. But when he's in prison, he's not limited. The Word of God is not bound there. He can preach the gospel and see people come to Christ. And now this slave who had escaped from his master comes to prison, is with the Apostle Paul, and there's a new birth that happens right there in prison. It's a wonderful thing to see the new birth, the turning of someone from their sins and a reliance on their own works to trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. It's really what we just sang about. His robes for mine. There's a symbolism in that song of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. There's also the indication that the wrath that was due to us fell upon him. That's the gospel message. God sent his son into this world so that as he died upon the cross, whoever trusted in him would have salvation. It's not those who try to work or those who try to please God by their actions. We could never truly do that. God is holy and just, and he demands perfection. And the only one who has ever lived a perfect life is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is preaching that message that Thessalonians came to Christ, and you could say when you look at uh, his relationship to them that he has kind of a father-type relationship. In chapter 2, before we get to the passage we're going to look at in more depth, he's actually describing his integrity 
his integrity in the way that he dealt with them. There may be some critics that are speaking about Paul and Silas and Timothy, and he's trying to make sure that they understood or understand, rather, his motives and his methods. And if you read through the first six verses there of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can see that his motives and his methods are full of integrity. Let's read verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we came, never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. I'm just going to briefly touch on his defense here of his motives, his methods. What he says in those verses is that his ministry of the gospel was guided not by error, but by the truth. He was preaching the truth to them. His ministry also was not based upon uncleanness. The word impurity in verse 3 is the idea of uncleanness. When Paul spoke for Christ and lived for Christ, there wasn't any uncleanness or filthiness connected with his life. He was not like the Pharisees who Jesus rebuked for being whitewashed tombs on the outside to appear beautiful, but he said inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Paul was speaking from the standpoint not of perfection, not of sinless perfection, but his motives were pure, his life was pure, his presentation was not deceitful. You see that at the end of verse 3, he says, or by way of deceit. There was an openness, there was an honesty, there wasn't anything to hide. He wasn't coming advertising one thing, but really looking to give another. He was very open in what he was doing as he preached the message of Jesus Christ. And you can see people, plenty, plenty of people in the world today that present one thing, but really their motive is to get something else in the door. There's a front presentation, but really the only reason they're talking to you is they have something else they want to talk to you about. Paul said that his ministry was not based upon any deceit like that. There was not a motive to please men. Notice that in verse 4, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men. And certainly to preach the gospel, you, you can't have a motive to please men. Men don't like to hear, women either, about their sinfulness. Uh, there's really not anything in our sinful hearts that likes to hear about the fact that we deserve the wrath of God for our sins. But that's the truth. And Paul says we didn't come in order to please men. The preaching of the gospel confronts people with really the, the truth about themselves, with what Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are, we are all sinners, 
There's not one of us who has done good, not even one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, quoting the Old Testament psalm. So he's not seeking to please men, but rather he's seeking to please God. That's what he says at the end of verse 4. And then he says, we never came with flattering speech, nor with a pretext for greed. They didn't use flattery as a means of advancing their message, not trying to say good things about their hearers. Obviously, the message of sin would do the opposite. They're not motivated by money. His purpose was not to come into Thessalonica and make merchandise of those people. He wasn't trying to get their money. And he wasn't motivated by human praise. Verse 6 says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. In fact, if you look at the Apostle Paul, certainly there were many who came to love him, but there are also many who came to hate him and chased him out of town. Those who preach the gospel may become famous, but they might become famous because people hate them, because they're preaching the truth about the message of God. And Christ said that his followers would be hated. What is Paul doing? He's defending his integrity before these believers. If there were critics, he really was a spokesman for God. And there are times where he does defend his integrity, not for Paul per se, but for the fact that he is an apostle of Christ. He represents Christ. doesn't want the ministry of Christ to be spoken of with ill repute. Rather, he wants to make Jesus Christ famous. He wants Jesus Christ's name to be known by the world. And for his disciples, there needs to be a life of integrity. And that life of integrity can reinforce the truthfulness of the message. I believe that's part of the reason that Paul is relaying those things to these new believers. But in verse 7, there's a turn... And the turn is to describe his relationship to them in very tender ways, especially in verses 7 and 8. Read, read these verses with me. But we, he says, prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You became, literally the word is beloved. You ever see John or Paul referring to his beloved children or calling them beloved? just means that they're loved by him. So this is a, a tender expression, and it is the mark of a spiritual father. You could certainly say a mother as well, but a father. And we sang about it in our songs this morning. What is the mark of a spiritual father, a godly father? or mother for that matter. It's love. Spiritual father possesses and expresses genuine love for his children. And there's a genuine love coming from the apostle here to these Thessalonian believers. Let's look in detail at what he says, verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you. I'm going to use the word condescension, but not condescension with contempt. Condescension means coming down on the level that they were. Sort of getting down on the floor and playing with the children. Right? You ever see a father doing that? That's what Paul is doing here with these new believers. 
though he was an apostle, though he was trained in the scriptures, though he could stand later in front of the Sanhedrin and speak for God and on a national level communicate not only his faith but the faith, but here with these new believers, he's just getting down on their level and he's spending time with them, showing love to them. Certainly, Silas and Timothy did as well. Verse 7 says, But we prove to be gentle among you. The we there refers to the authors, and I say authors, we think of this as a letter of Paul, but if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, it's Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. There's three. And these three... He actually defends all three of them with regard to their integrity. And now in verse 7, it's all three of them that prove to be gentle. So it wasn't just Paul. It was also Silas, also Timothy, who spent time with these disciples. In a practical way, I just want to encourage us, if you're discipling someone who has come to faith in Christ and they're a new believer, taking the time to, to remember what it's like to be a new believer and spending time thinking about that and trying to help someone who's just coming to an understanding of the faith. They've come to faith in Christ, but they're still trying to understand the principles of the Christian life. It's a blessing when someone comes alongside and just gets down on their level. Certainly for fathers, there's a principle here. Fathers, do we spend time with our children? Do we come down on their level? We condescend from all the busy things that we're doing to be able to just relate to them in loving, gentle ways. We need to take the time to do that. We need to take the time to teach the gospel to our children after they've come to faith in Christ, to teach them simply the truths of the Word of God. I saw it recently. I took a photo because I couldn't help it. It was down in a toddler room. There was an event, I can't even remember when it was, but the toddler room, there were four fathers in there with their children. And I don't know where the mothers were, probably enjoying a couple minutes of conversation together, like they don't always get to have. But I took a picture at that moment because I thought, that's a beautiful thing to see fathers taking the time. I saw some of it yesterday, too taking the time to get on the level with the children, just to relate to them, to love them. Not an absent father, but a present father. And then as you spend that time communicating the faith, teaching the truths of the Word of God. I came across a number of years ago a book called To the Parents of My Grandchildren. You have to think about that. To the Parents of My Grandchildren. Well, one of the things he said, and I think it, it applies with relation to this principle, the author says, Ah, you dear young parents, how little we are apt to value those evenings, perhaps with the children on our knees or at our feet in front of the fire, may be after they're in bed, and they say, Tell us a story. That is a chance you would give all you possess later on to have once more. But now it's yours. Now you may teach them to love that heavenly land towards which you're traveling. Now is your chance to teach them the true worth of that heavenly country. The hearts are young. The love is fresh and warm. Now is your chance, a chance you will never have again. 
I know that the day has been ever so full. I know you are tired. I know it's much easier to sing Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me, and kiss them goodnight, but it is a golden opportunity lost, worth more than all the gold in this world. Just think about that. Tell us a story. Well, once you start telling stories, you've got to tell more stories, but that's okay. That's a good thing, especially if those stories are Bible stories. How many stories are there in the Bible? I remember I started to teach my daughters at one point stories in the Bible, and I tried every time to teach a new one. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, more I'm sure than I told them. I just have to expand my knowledge of the stories and details so that I can communicate that to them. But take advantage of that, fathers. And if we are also discipling new believers, they need to hear the same stories. I remember teaching a new believer the story of Zacchaeus. He wasn't someone who'd grown up in church. He'd never sung Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. He never sang that song. And so he, he hadn't heard that story. But there are principles in that story that convey the truth about repentance and salvation. And it captured his attention. I remember recently telling the story of the prodigal to someone who I don't know that he was born again, but as I was telling the story, I realized I had his attention like I hadn't had in other parts of the conversation. Telling the stories of the Bible, communicating the truth, that's a part of just getting down on the level of those that the Lord puts in our care. It's an, it's an expression of love. Notice verse 7, the rest of the verse. It says, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, the word you might see in the New American Standard, the word mother is in italics. That means it's not there in the original. It's just the word for nurse. And the word could be referring to someone who functions as a substitute for a mother in the process of rearing children. Someone has described it that way. Deborah in the Old Testament functioned in this way. Joash, when he was king, he had a nurse who cared for him. It's possible that this is someone who is functioning practically as a mother from day to day. It's also possible that this is actually a woman who has been giving of herself in her life to children, very young children, but now has a child of her own. Someone described this as the epitome of maternal tenderness. What is true when a woman, she's already given her life to caring for children, but now she has one of her own? The tender love and care that she has for that child. There's a tender affection, almost a doting upon. And Paul says this is how he related to these new believers, nourishing them, caring for them. The image that he's pulling in is, is that image, but it's an apostle with new believers. Just the the closeness of relation that supports them and helps them and nourishes them so that they might grow up in the faith. And I just want to encourage us with the kind of love that Paul's describing here. This is not Paul in and of himself. This is not something that Paul worked up. 
This is nothing other than what we all have who've come to Christ, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit to produce love in our lives. You might say, well, I've never related to anybody that way. Well, if you have the Spirit of God within, that's what He moves us toward, is expressions of love, even that kind of tender and affectionate love. And so that love that Paul had here is not unique to the apostle. It's a kind of love that the Holy Spirit produces that flows through one believer and then ministers to another to nourish them and help them when they are in need at earliest days. Notice in verse 8, he says, having so fond an affection for you. This is the idea of a longing love. This is the only time the word is used in the New Testament when it's translated there, having so fond an affection for you. It's a little bit of a different word. It's used in other ancient Greek literature. There's a time when Job is describing his longing for death, and the word in the translation is this word. Uh, In Psalm 63, the word is used to describe longing for God in a dry and weary land. And in the fourth century, on the grave of a child, the parents put an expression of their longing for this lost child, this child that had died. Having so fond an affection for you, As if the other two statements weren't enough, now he says, we long for you. There was a longing kind of love, a yearning. Something in his inner person was was moved about them. He had a heart for them. You might be able to see this in David's life when his son Absalom died, his son who was a rebel, usurped the throne, caused trouble in the kingdom, and yet David still longed for his son, loved his son. And when his son died, when he finally learned, he asked and asked and asked. Those who were running at the battle, they're coming away from the battle, and he's asking, is it well with Absalom? Is it well with the young man? Is it well? And they're not giving him a full answer until someone came and said, may the enemies of my Lord be as that young man, which implied he was dead. And what does David do? He went up to the top of the gate to a room all by himself, apparently, and he starts to cry out, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. That longing love David had, certainly had when he began rebelling, But that longing love is not expressed here for those who had died, but those who are alive. And they're not for his literal children. Paul didn't have a wife or children. But this is for new believers. A longing for them. A longing that certainly influenced his life of prayer as he talks about giving thanks for them and praying for them. In fact, he says in chapter 3, verse 6, You want to look down there. Start in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear the tempter, that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith, that is their faith in Christ and their love, which is their, the fruit of their relationship with Christ. And then he says, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. What's he describing there? He's describing a longing for them, a longing to know of their welfare, a longing to be certain that they really had not only believed, but were continuing to express their faith in Christ and love for one another. Look at the next verse. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through their faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. You see Paul's heart? You see his heart for these new believers? Do you have that heart for new believers? As we apply this passage back in chapter 2, I think it's important for us to remember the context and the circumstance, and that's the most direct application. To have a kind of love that longs for the establishment and growth of new believers, that they might not only believe and keep on believing, but they might express their love for the Lord and also for one another. And, of course, we can pray for that as well. I do believe this aspect of love will actually produce prayers if you see it in your life. Again, produced by the Spirit of God. Produced by the Spirit of God. But let's apply it to fathers. What about your longing for your children, for their spiritual well-being. We long for their well-being, I hope. We wonder if they're away from us and we understand circumstances and we want to know the details so that we know they're okay. But is it well with their soul? Do we know that they know the Lord? Is there a longing for that that stops us to pray for them that sometimes as we wake up in the night and think about them, we pray for them? When they fail or they fall, and I'm not just talking about falling physically, but if they fail or fall, does it grieve us? Are they on our hearts? Do we see their disappointments and long for them with love, long that they be encouraged, long that they really continue to love the Lord, if they do love the Lord, or that they would come to know the Lord. But Paul here is giving some tender expressions. He, if that wasn't enough, he continues on. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection, I'm saying that's a longing kind of love. He says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. The kind of love that he's describing is a self-giving and sacrificial love. I say self-giving and sacrificial. They'd already given them the gospel. They'd already really hazarded their lives in Thessalonica for the sake of preaching the gospel to these people. That certainly is a sacrifice. And you might say that in and of itself was an act of love. What greater, could they, what greater thing could they give? The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we've sung about today, the message of God's salvation through Christ, through faith in His name, putting your trust in Him and Him alone and what He did upon the cross to satisfy the wrath of God and take the punishment that I deserved 
and then to be given the gift of righteousness through faith. That's the message of eternal salvation that they gave to these Thessalonians. And I say, what greater gift? There is no greater gift. That's the greatest gift that they could have given. But as they gave that gift, they also gave themselves to these believers in sacrificial ways. Notice he says, but also our own lives because you become very dear to us. So this love that is being expressed is a genuine love that is having daily ramifications for them, not only as they preach the gospel, but as they spent time with them. Now, I think the love actually goes further, at least in terms of illustration in verse 9, because he says that after they preach the gospel, because of this relationship of love, the love that they had for the Thessalonian believers, he says in verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. What is Paul talking about there? Well, remember when he said he wasn't there out of greed? He wasn't there to gain money from them. He wasn't coming to town as a teacher, just sort of setting himself up, waiting to, be, waiting to uh, gain some kind of profit from those who would come to hear him. No, when Paul came to this town, and he did it in Corinth as well, he not only preached the gospel, he also labored and worked. Now, he makes an argument in other places that he had the right, if he preached the gospel, to receive the benefit, to, to be supported by those who came to Christ, but he didn't take that into account here. Instead, he and apparently Silas and Timothy as well worked, verse 9, night and day so as to not be a burden, he says, to any of you. So it's, in this case, it's Paul going to a town, working, possibly making tents, which he did at other times, and then preaching the gospel as well. So that what he was doing for this town is what he did for the Corinthians. He was giving them, free of charge, the gospel message. He's not, he's not trying to, not to say he couldn't go there and be supported by them. Jesus was supported by his followers and it was, it's certainly fine to do that. That's, that's you know, the sinless son of God w w would not betray any kind of greed either. But Paul went to this place with the purpose in mind that he was going to come in and give the gospel free of charge. Why? What does he say? Verse 9, so as to not be a burden to any of you. That's love. That love that is self-sacrificing, self-giving, working hard for the sake of those that are loved. And obviously we can apply it as we have been applying it to the new believers here, but what about parents, fathers especially? Do you give of yourself? Do you give of your time? Do you give of your life? Not only get down on their level, but spend extended time with those that God has put into your care. Someone has said, how do you spell love? T-I-M-E. This is time, as Paul's describing it, on their behalf as he works, but it also would include certainly time with them. And as Paul 
preaches the gospel here, he certainly knew their names, but he's talking on this level. He's talking on a broader level because he's talking to all of them. But knowing each one of them, relating to each one of them, Paul didn't have the, poss the possibility of having an uh, electronic device, but isn't that sometimes what takes the place of face-to-face -face time? Not FaceTime, face-to-face time. Right? Why would we let devices like that take us away from relating to our children? We need to put it down. Look them in the eye. Listen to their voice. Hear what they are saying. Listen to their stories. Watch what they do. Watch me, Dad. Right? How many times do you hear that? Watch me. And they jump off a step. Right? <laughs> Exciting. That's, that's, someday you won't be watching that. Right? Taking the time sacrificially to relate to them to know what they're interested in, to know their friends. All of this as, as we as fathers relate to those that God has put into our charge. Paul's doing that as a spiritual father. Beyond this love that's described in verses 7 and down through verse 9, I think verse 9 is an illustration of it, but verse 10 he moves in a little different direction. It's still, I believe, love, but it's more of a focus on the life of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Look at verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. What's he talking about there? He's talking about example. In addition to love, there's a godly example. So another mark of a spiritual father is maintaining, setting and maintaining a godly example before his children. It's really combined in the proverb where it says, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Let your eyes observe my ways. There's two things there. But letting the child observe your ways or delight in your ways is a call for them to look at your example. And obviously our example is important. There's an imitation that children are good at. They say the things that we say. They do the things that we do. And even within the context of the church, of course, that's true. New believers tend to learn from older believers. They tend to follow. If they're really a disciple of Christ, a learner, one of the ways that they learn is not always by listening, but by watching. And Paul is living a life, along with Silas and Timothy here, that's worthy of that imitation. And Paul is putting himself on record as he says this. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses and so is God. So the witnesses to his godly example, he isn't just saying this. He's saying, you know this because you've seen it. And not only have you seen it, but God has seen it. Paul wasn't a perfect person. Neither were Silas and Timothy. They had sins like the rest of us, confessed them to God. But 
by the way that they were living, in dependence upon the Spirit of God, the help of the Word of God, they were living a godly life. Part of a godly life, by the way, is when you make a mistake, when you sin against God. When you sin against another, one, another person, you make it right. It doesn't say that Paul had to do that, or Silas or Timothy did, but if they sinned in that context, certainly that would be one way to teach someone of how to live the Christian life. The Christian life isn't one of perfection. It's a progression as we're progressively sanctified. But when we sin, we go to God, we ask for His forgiveness. If we've sinned against someone else, we seek to reconcile with them by asking for their forgiveness for what we've done, seeking their forgiveness, and then the reconciliation can come. But what does Paul draw attention to as he puts them and God in that first part of that verse? He says, you are witnesses, you've observed this, and so has God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. These are characteristics of Paul's godly life. And really, fathers, if we could show the kind of love that Paul's describing in verses 7 through 9, and we could just live right, I'm not even talking about what we say, but if we could live right, which involves our speech, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Just love right and live right. Our words are important, and he talks about that in just a little bit, but how powerful would that be just to have a godly person who loves his children and lives an example before them that is devoted to God? He says the word devoutly. It's the word for holiness. It's the word that means separated to God, separated from the world, turning away from sin and turning towards God. And then he talks about living uprightly. That's according to God's word with obedience. Someone who's living uprightly has a standard that they're seeking to follow. And again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but in general, is a father concerned about what is doing right? Was Paul concerned about doing what was right? Yes, he wanted them to understand that God in heaven has a will, an express will for our behavior. And as he set the example for them, he was setting a, an example that was upright, that was pleasing, that was consistent with what God had said. And he even says, blamelessly. There was nothing that you could get a handle on that you would say, well, Paul's a good guy, but this is some tendency that he has. This is something he always does wrong. And again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but a life of integrity that Paul is living. He's without fault, at least consistent fault, that carries on without him correcting it. Now, I just ask, fathers, could your life, could my life be described as devout? Could it be described as upright? Could it be described as blameless before our children? It's one thing to maintain sort of a front before other people. But if your children, especially if your children are in your home and they are observing, they see you and know you. And if we, as fathers, sin against the Lord by sinning against our children, we can make that right. We need to make that right. Not only do we need to correct our actions, but we also need to sometimes go to our children 
I remember the story of D.L. Moody who was upset with his sons for doing something. They had a pony that apparently got loose and did a bunch of things to the yard that he was upset about, and he was harsh with them. But he came back to them, and he told them that what he had done was not right. Asked for their forgiveness. And if you've ever been the recipient of that kind of an apology or desire to reconcile from your father, and I have with my father, and I've had to do that with my children, that is such a powerful teaching moment. Because it, it actually, in the context of sin and mistakes that were made, it's correcting those, confessing the sin, and making it right. And children need to see that too. They, they don't, they're not always going to see an absolutely perfect example. We're sinners. But if we know the Lord, we're progressively moving to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And as we progressively move in that direction, we fail and we make a mistake. We need to make it right. That's a part of being a follower of Christ too. Christ had a lot to say about reconciling. And as a father, you may have had to do that with your child. I hope that if even if I'm talking about this right now and you think there's something that I've done or am doing and I need to repent of it, do it today. Don't, don't continue on. And I know when, when, when my father did that with me, that my love for him increased, my understanding of him increased, my really recognition of his humility increased. It really set an example for me lifelong that I might do the same thing with my children at some point. So there really is, in Paul's explanation here, something for those who are seeking to lead others by their example in the church. Application for fathers, of course. Our example makes a difference for our children. Look at verse 11. He says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So a spiritual father maintains or sets and maintains a godly example, certainly has love for his children, expresses that love, but a spiritual father also encourages and strengthens his children by verbally, by a verbally edifying ministry. I say verbally involves our words. Edifying, that means to build up. And that would be the purpose in verse 11 of exhortation, encouraging, and the word is translated imploring. It means to bear witness. It means to say what is true, but to say what is true to someone. And so Paul is talking about verbal ministry. Obviously, he's talking about his and Silas and Timothy's ministry. And notice in verse 11, at the end of the verse, it says, each one of you as a father would his own children. Oldest, youngest, and yes, middle children too, right? We get forgotten sometimes. But he's saying each one. 
there's an attention to the individual. There's a focus on individual needs and concerns. And there's a message, you might say, for each one of them as the same person is relating to them in each one of these ways, exhorting, encouraging, and I say bearing witness or imploring. The word exhort means to come alongside, to invite, or to appeal. Okay? Exhortation oftentimes involves something you already know. It's urging someone to do something they already know what they're supposed to do, but it's coming alongside and I want to urge you to do this. I want to encourage you to do this. There's also the word there that's encouraging. This is actually a word that refers to comforting. We sang about that in the song this morning, how a father comforts our sorrows. God the Father comforts our sorrows and quiets our fears. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they related to these new believers, came to them comforted them, certainly if they had fears by their own example in life, their trust in God, they could help quiet the fears of these new believers and help them. And obviously, as a father, if you are a father, you have a, an opportunity to do that with your children from time to time. Not just little children, sometimes adult children have fears that Parents with adult children can take the time to talk with that child, even that adult child, about that fear and comfort them and encourage them with regard to whatever it is that is going on in their life. I still remember at one point being very discouraged and calling my dad. Um, my, my mom and dad both encouraged me, but this particular night I called my dad. And without going into all the details of what, was go what I was going through, I was just very down. And I was several states away. Uh, my dad listened to me. And then he said, well, can I pray for you? And he prayed for me over the phone. And I really don't think anything about my circumstance changed except it now related to God. And I understood that it related to God, that God was actually sovereign in what was going on in my life. And I called him again, but I never called him about that again because he had really ministered to my heart just by drawing my attention to the Lord. I remember one morning being, this is when I was a teenager and I was sick, staying home either from school or might have been a church service. I remember my dad came over. I was laying on the couch. And he just put his hand on my head. And he said, son, I'm going to pray for you. And he prayed for me. And I don't remember when I got better. But I will never forget that. That expression of love and comfort and encouragement. There could be somebody even here today who needs that kind of comfort from a fellow believer. You really don't know when you enter into the house of God, we gather together. You really don't know everything that's on one another's hearts. We need to be sensitive to that. But especially when you have care over someone, as Paul did with these believers, and then, of course, fathers with your children, we need to take note of when they need encouragement. 
and when we can take the time to then encourage them and help them. The last word in verse 11, or the last word that regards uh, verbal ministry, it's translated imploring. You might see in the margin it says testifying to, or I use the words bear witness. This is the idea of bearing witness to the truth and what Paul was doing there at, Cor- at uh, Thessalonica was he was preaching the gospel to them, but there were many more truths that they needed to learn and hear. And in the context of that relationship, there were times where he would raise a truth about God, for the, and you can even see it in his letters where he draws attention to truths about God. And as we seek to bear witness even to those who already know the Lord. This is something where we're just testifying to the truth. Um, and I just ask you if you do that. In addition to talking about, what could we talk about today? We talked about the beautiful weather. talked about the beautiful wedding yesterday. It's not to say we won't talk about those things, but what could we talk about when it comes to, to bearing witness to the truth about God? I hope today that in the house of God, we're talking about the greatness of God and the gospel of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the fatherhood of God. There are many things that we can bear witness to. And we can bear witness to those good things. We also certainly bear witness to the hard truths of Scripture when they are brought to bear in life. I remember one time in my brother's life, and he's told me this story, heard it more than once, when my brother was rebelling against the Lord. And he knew the right way of truth, and he wasn't walking in it. And my dad, seeking to help him and turn him to the right way, at one point told my brother, he said, Son, when you do what you're doing, when you rebel like you're rebelling, you're setting yourself up to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. Imagine hearing that from your dad. And my brother said, it was his testimony, he said, when, when I heard that, he said, I felt like a demon. And I praise the Lord, my brother's repented, and he's turned and followed the Lord, and now he's serving the Lord as a pastor, but there was a time that was kind of the last thing we ever thought because of what was going on in his life. What, what comes between a life that's headed that direction and that destination of service for the Lord? What comes between those two? It's sometimes a father, sometimes a mother, who just bears witness, who just says the truth, says it lovingly, but, but says it like it is, so that Somebody who's not seeing straight begins to start seeing straight. Obviously, God has to work. I'm not trying to eliminate that. But Paul here, as he's describing this verbal ministry, there are times where he just had to testify to those believers of the truth. Now, lastly, and very quickly, what was his goal? What was his goal for these believers as he ministered to them in love, as he set an example for them? along with uh, Silas and Timothy. Notice verse 12. He says, so that you would walk. What is he talking to them about? What is he urging them toward? What is he comforting them about and, and, and moving them toward in terms of his ministry? It says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the destination for believers, to walk worthy of God. And this life that we're in is a progressive move towards that. As we're exhorted and encouraged and we see examples before us and people love us, what, what is the direction? It's to walk worthy of God. It's to live in such a way that God is pleased, that God is honored, that, that our light shines and other people hear about Christ through our life. A child, someone has said, walks worthy of a parent when he lives in such a way as to reflect honor in that parent for the method in which he's trained him. When he so lives as to bring no disgrace on him, so as to not pain his heart by misconduct, or so as to give no occasion to any to speak reproachfully of him. This he does, this the child does, they walk worthy of their parent when that child keeps the commands of the parent when he leads a life of purity and virtue, when he carries out the principles of the family in his own life, when he honors his father by showing respect for his opinions, and of course when he endeavors to provide for his comfort and to promote his welfare. So that's talking on a human level, but when we walk worthy of God, we're seeking to obey him. We're seeking to honor him through our lives to lift him up and bring him glory. And obviously, as a father, we need to have something in mind when we're training our children. It can't be worldly success. It can't be thoughts of fame in this world or something that's only going to be a temporal gain. Our definition of success ought to be God's definition. Living a life that is worthy of God, pleasing to God, honoring to God. Are we working towards that? Are we praying towards that? Now, I hope even as we've gone through this passage, there are things that as you think about these things, you'd say, well, there's application certainly for my life if you're a father as a father, maybe a mother as well. But I hope within the church that we'll see the opportunity we have to help new believers by just simply, isn't it simple? Loving them? Setting an example for them? verbally ministering to them towards Christ-likeness. It's really simple. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today and we are grateful that you are a perfect Father. We thank you, Lord, for giving us even instruction in your word to guide us through life, certainly within the church. But then as earthly fathers, Lord, we pray that we might seek to be faithful to this calling that we have. And Lord, I do pray that you would make application of the truth to our hearts today. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they've never turned to him in faith and truly relied upon him alone for salvation, I do pray that you'd work, that your spirit would convict and do only what your spirit can do in hearts. And I pray that they might turn to you today. And Lord, we pray that as we go through this day, that we would bring you honor and glory through our lives. Thank you for the privilege we have to worship you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.